It's Wednesday, November 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. There's a lot of talk about a new round of lockdowns as the country sees increased cases of coronavirus. Some states have already imposed more restrictions on businesses as we wade into all too familiar territory. And the focus again turns to what Congress can do to help individuals and businesses with more stimulus to get through more closures. Courtney Brown, markets reporter at Axios, joins us for what could be the economic fallout of lockdown 2.0. Next, Vice President Mike Pence faces an uncertain future as the Trump administration will soon have to make its way out. Pence does have presidential ambitions of running in 2024, but if President Trump wants to run again, he will have to take a back seat. Pence has been relatively quiet since the election, but will emerge soon to boost Republican senators in Georgia headed to a runoff. Gabby Orr, White House reporter at Politico, joins us for what Mike Pence's next moves could be. Finally, it's not only economic effects to worry about if more lockdowns are imposed. The emotional burden is also an important factor in people's lives. A recent study out of New Zealand shows that the emotional cost was far greater for those with previous mental health problems and also younger people. John Timmer, senior science editor at Ars Technica, joins us for why it's important to keep the emotional toll of lockdowns in mind. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We want to keep our schools open. We're trying to keep the economy going. And the issue is how do you sort of tweak and create a more nuanced approach to interventions? Hotspots should see more closures like, for instance, indoor dining. Joining us now is Courtney Brown, markets reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Courtney. Thank you for having me. You know, a lot of the conversation right now surrounding the coronavirus as cases are surging, there's a lot of talk about new rounds of lockdowns, businesses shutting down again just to help limit the spread and not overwhelm our healthcare system again. So as these conversations are going on, we're starting to look at what could be the economic fallout of doing these all over again, or even not in the same way, at least modified versions of that. And, you know, more than ever, people are looking to Congress to see what they're planning to do with another round of possible stimulus. You know, if these businesses are going to be shut down once again, they're going to need a lot of extra help. So, Courtney, tell us a little bit about what we're hearing about how the economy could fare if we start to do this all over again. In the broadest sense of the matter, there is a little bit of deja vu that I'm sure a lot of Americans are experiencing right now. Um, It might remind them of what was happening earlier in the year. The virus was surging. State and local officials were making decisions about what type of restrictions to put in place to kind of stem the spread of the virus. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now from coast to coast. The big difference this time is that there is very little hope that there is going to be an economic stimulus package to kind of help the economic side effects of doing these shutdowns. Congress has been at a stalemate over negotiation for months, and it's unclear if anything is going to get done in a lame duck session. And when President-elect Biden does take office in the middle of January, even then it's unclear what's going to happen with economic stimulus. One of the other big things, too, is what the Federal Reserve can do. I know that there's been push for them to extend certain programs that they have in place, what could they do to help? I think this is a question that the Federal Reserve has been getting more and more because of the stalemate in Congress. I think people are saying, well, it doesn't look like anything's going to happen in Congress. So what about you, Federal Reserve? What can you do? And Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has kind of been saying, whoa, 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 
We don't have spending powers the way that Congress does. We have lending powers. And he said that time and time again. And so what that means is that the Federal Reserve is authorized to dole out loans, but their power is limited in doing things like sending out stimulus checks to Americans in the same way that happened earlier this year. The Fed says that its powers don't extend that far. And so as far as what the Fed can do, the Fed is able to, the Fed has set up emergency facilities to kind of issue loans to small to medium-sized businesses. It's set up a facility that would help struggling states and localities and municipalities that are strapped for cash right now. But beyond that, the Fed has kind of said that Congress needs to move on the stimulus front. And if not, we could see the economic recovery backslide. And on Congress's side, what's the issue there? Obviously, there was discussions going on. It seemed like everything cooled down because of the election because we're heading right into Election Day. All of that happened. The president is refusing to concede. He's fighting in a lot of states still. But Congress, what are they doing now? What's the big holdup for them? This is kind of like a not very exciting answer, but I think it's more of the same. Senator Mitch McConnell has expressed interest in passing some sort of bill during the lame duck session, but it's unclear what's happened since he said that. And it's kind of astonishing that we're in a worse place than we were earlier this year as far as the rate of coronavirus infections. And as far as economic relief is concerned, it seems like there's no relief on the horizon. Michigan and Washington State are going to start banning indoor dining, shut down some entertainment venues. Michigan is doing some things. Los Angeles and California are evaluating what they're going to do. There's talking about possibilities of curfews for businesses so people can't stay out past 10 o'clock and, and, you know, promote the spread of coronavirus. So there's a lot of talk about this. And no one's really saying anything about full-on stay-at-home orders like we did at the height of the pandemic. But even still, any type of business closures really could affect, you know, everywhere, the community, states, all the way down to the local level, everything. Yeah, I think the bottom line across all of these different measures that states and cities are putting into place this go-round is that they're going to limit economic activity. Now, what's interesting is that, like you said, we're not seeing the really, really strict lockdowns that we saw earlier this year. Instead, you're seeing places like New York, put a limit around timing on when there can be indoor dining rather than banning indoor dining altogether. And so maybe that's a little bit of a silver lining so far. Maybe if you're a restaurant worker, the chance of you being laid off completely is a little bit diminished given the looseness of the restrictions as compared to what they were earlier this year. I think earlier this year, you saw restaurants just shutting their doors completely because they were asked to do so. And of course, when they're not bringing in any revenue, it's really hard to support a staff. And so they're laying off their staff. Now, of course, they had the Paycheck Protection Program to fall back on, the government program that doled out grants to small businesses or loans that could turn into grants. This time, though, if small businesses need that, the option isn't there. Courtney Brown, markets reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And median household income in Nevada dropped when Joe Biden was vice 
president, but under President Donald Trump, median household income jumped 20% by the end of 2019. Joining us now is Gabby Orr, White House reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Gabby. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about Mike Pence throughout all of this that's been going on. Obviously, Election Day came and went. There's still a lot of fighting going on over the outcome, but Joe Biden is the president-elect. He will be taking office on January 20th, despite President Trump continuing to fight all of this. But throughout this, Mike Pence has been pretty quiet. We haven't really seen him do a lot of public events, uh, smaller speeches, things like that here and there. But he also hasn't really taken to the same amount that the president has to say that the election has been stolen and all of that. So what does Mike Pence do after all of this? What is, you know, what is he expected to do with his future after they leave the White House? Well, it's a great question. And you're right about that. Pence has been very much walking a fine line in the weeks since the election because he is still vice president at the end of the day. And he's still loyal to this president, regardless of how he personally feels the outcome of the election went. And so while many Trump surrogates, campaign officials, people who are very close to the president have been hitting the airwaves, talking about their legal strategy, echoing the president's claims that this election was stolen. The vice president hasn't. And the reason for that is he's kind of waiting to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, that's the toughest part. He's waiting to see what happens. There's been talk saying that maybe he wants to run in 2024. But at the same time, President Trump has signaled that maybe he wants to run for reelection then. You know, so it's like it's what does he do if his former boss wants to run? Do you run against him kind of thing? You know, people say he's such a loyalist that that's not something he would do. Right. I mean, there's nobody in a tougher position if that ends up being the case than Vice President Pence. Uh, it's been widely reported by myself and many others who follow him closely that he has presidential ambitions of his own. We know that he's had his eye on 2024 for a while. And if the president didn't run, that he would be very well placed in a Republican primary field because of his link to the Trump base, the Trump voters, and also because of his loyalty to the president. But I've spoken with people who are very close to the vice president about what he would do in a scenario in which his his former boss, President Donald Trump, runs for a second non-consecutive term in 2024. And they all said that it just wouldn't be in Pence's nature to run against him, that he would likely bow out. He wouldn't even, you know, launch a campaign in 2024 if that were to be the case. And so, again, it is kind of a waiting game to see how this plays out for the VP. But there are other ways that he'll stay busy in the next two years as he and, you know, so many other Republicans start to think about the 2024 presidential race. He'll be campaigning for House and Senate candidates in the midterm cycle for 2022. He'll be fundraising for um, a number of those candidates with the hopes of putting the House back under Republican control in two years and expect that he'll kind of follow tradition when it comes to ex-VPs. He'll give paid speeches. He might even write a book. He'll take advantage of the time out of office to grow in both his own sort of political standing and ideology, but also to find some revenue streams. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to see him pretty soon. He's going to be in Gainesville, Florida on Friday, I believe. He'll be in Georgia also to boost up Republican senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. They're going to have runoff contests in January. So we'll start seeing him again pretty soon. <laughs> it's like he was just taking it easy after the election came through and all. But he's still the head of the coronavirus task force. We really haven't seen him in any capacity there. The president gave a press conference, just talk, an update on Operation Warp Speed. But there's been a lot of coronavirus news lately, and still he's been pretty quiet. 
He has been very quiet, but privately he's been working as head of the coronavirus task force for the past couple of weeks, at least according to his aides. They say that he's been in touch with a number of governors who are facing rising infection rates and hospitalizations in their states. He's continued to hold virtual meetings with the task force, and he's very closely following the developments with Pfizer and Moderna about the possibility of a coronavirus vaccine. So while he has definitely taken a less public role, and and there's a reason for that, the president does not want the focus to be on coronavirus right now. He wants it to be on his you know, pressure campaign to change the election outcome. The vice president has still been working behind the scenes to respond to this pandemic. You made one note in your article that struck me that I'm really looking forward to now is we don't know how long the president will continue on this to say that the election was stolen to fight the outcome of the election. We don't know how long he will take to concede, if at all. But Vice President Mike Pence on January 6th, we'll have to oversee a joint session of Congress where they go over those electoral college votes and I guess finally declare the winner for once and for all kind of thing. So he's going to have to go through that. And who knows where the president's going to be at throughout all of it. Right. It's definitely an awkward situation for the vice president to be in, but one that he's constitutionally obligated to do. And, you know, if you go back to 2000, it was awkward for Al Gore to oversee that affirmation of the election results in in 2000 when he was contesting them. And so I think you'll see the president hopefully be gracious to his vice president while he has to sit for that as, you know, president of the Senate. But you never know with, with Donald Trump. Gabby Orr, White House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That in itself was pretty upsetting, and that certainly carried a mental toll. So what you're probably seeing is the combined effect of both the lockdown and the stress of the uncertainty and the bad news that we're going on. Joining us now is John Timmer, Senior Science Editor at Ars Technica. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you for having me on. We're seeing coronavirus cases surge across the country, and in response to that, we're starting to see New rounds of lockdowns, modified lockdowns, maybe nothing on the scale as it happened at the beginning of the pandemic, but we're starting to see some other plans come through. And one of the things, obviously, there's an economic toll that goes along with that. But the other thing is the emotional cost that comes with these lockdowns, staying home, not being able to go do some of your normal activities. And we all went through it once already. So we know that there was a real emotional cost to it. But we're getting some studies now, one particularly out of New Zealand, that looked at this emotional cost. And we're seeing that these types of lockdowns really affect younger people a lot. And they affect people that obviously had mental health issues before that. So, John, tell us a little bit more about what we're learning. The reason this worked well in New Zealand was because the New Zealand public health authorities conduct regular surveys about the mental health of their population. So they had past data that they could compare data gathered during the lockdown to. And so you could see what's different between now and prior. And, you know, it's important to say that this isn't just the effect of the lockdown. It probably seems like a century ago, but think back to March when we really didn't know much about what was going on, what our future might hold. And we were seeing bad news come out of places like Italy and Spain and then later New York. That in itself was pretty upsetting. And that certainly carried a mental toll. 
So what you're probably seeing is the combined effect of both the lockdown and the stress of the uncertainty and the bad news that were going on. So as you mentioned, they did this extensive survey throughout the duration of their lockdown. And what did we learn? You know, people were generally happy with their living situations, but overall happiness was not good. Compared to what it was like in the general New Zealand population beforehand, not surprisingly, anxiety was way up. And that's probably just, like I said, watching the news and seeing what's going on around you. And there were other measures of well-being that are standardized survey questions that we've validated many times, and people just weren't as generally content as they were with their lives beforehand. That's not to say there were no positives whatsoever. A lot of people were spending more time with their family and rated that as good. But overall, there was definitely more people that seemed to be unhappy with what was going on around them. Throughout this whole survey, we also learned that Obviously, the most at-risk people were younger adults and then uh, people that had a history of mental health problems. Excuse me. So if you had a previous diagnosis of a mental health issue, you're probably more likely to see problems this time around. And there's been a general trend in the literature that if you look, older people are just more mentally robust. They've seen some bad stuff before. They know they've gotten through it. Some things are probably familiar to them, and they've learned lots of coping mechanisms. And so, you know, it's not surprising that they deal with adversity a little better than the youth. And the other thing is younger people in their 20s and such are still learning how to uh, engage in social activity, forming peer groups, establishing lifelong friendships, things like that, and often involved in things like college activities or late high school activities. And so those are important things for their lives and for their development. So it's it's not surprising that, that lacking those takes a toll on them. Right. Definitely. And, and something that they miss, right? So when uh, restrictions started to get a little looser and things started opening up, younger people were the first ones that started going back out into the bars and restaurants. And then they became a big driver of the spread of coronavirus again. And, you know, rinse and repeat. That's why we see the cycle of growing infections again right now. And a lot of states are contemplating what to do. I know California and Los Angeles are going through this right now. Uh, They're imposing new restrictions, no stay-at-home orders just yet. But there's other places like New Mexico and Oregon that have implemented some type of stay-at-home orders. You know, it's tough because the temptation is, well, if there are no rules against it, it's fine. And that's that's actually not the case. We owe it to each other to be responsible about what we do, even when the state's not telling us specifically what we can't do. And that really does involve cutting back seriously on, on a lot of activities we consider normal. And that's, that's hard, but you know, there's good news on the vaccine front, and hopefully the end may be still six, eight months out right. where enough of the population's got been vaccinated. But, you know, We don't have to keep doing this indefinitely, it's starting to look like. John Timmer, Senior Science Editor at Ars Technica, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for talking with me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.